Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark. It is... An announcement this week, Mark, I forgot to tell you. Episode 257, Thursday, September the 1st, 2022. So, a Thursday, Mark, I've decided we're changing our our, our dates to Thursdays for the posting because basically in the last few weeks, generally I've posted them on a Thursday. Anyway, so I said, thought to myself, Brendan, I said, Brendan, why don't we just make sure we mention that it's out on a Thursday? Although that might end up being out, what, on a Wednesday or a Friday or or next year, depending on where you are (laughs) in the world. So episode 257, Thursday, September the 1st, Mark, and that's the news. Not much news, um, but that's it. Information and entertainment. I was just listening to Mr. Intro there. We haven't provided much entertainment lately, (laughs) have we? So I have to get on to that. How are you, Mark? And, and maybe not much information either. Maybe. No. I don't know why we're um, here. We better go. <laughs> I'm really, really good. I'm very well, Brendan. Very, very well. Excellent. Um, now, I do. We did have a little bit of a chit chat before we started, and I think we're going to chat a little bit about a particular topic in our general chit chat, Mark. Um, and I do do have a review that's heading our way and our listeners way mark but it's not quite there yet um i was hoping to have it ready for this week but probably next week and or definitely the week after but before we get into our general chit chat hello to everybody vetgurus at gmail.com the place to go have a look through our previous episodes if you want to support us and help pay for our production costs and and we were marveling weren't we mark at our nice shiny new recording program they've updated the software and uh it's got a dark theme it's very dark isn't it uh, i like it a, ch- a change is as good as a holiday isn't it it's quite good it might be that it might be you know that what are the what's many of my programs change from a white night, background night to mode. A, yes. night, might, we might be Zen casting in night mode. Yes, we may be so, um, and hopefully the oh, you never know the audio quality might be a little bit better than uh, normal, which couldn't be hard to, to be, Mark. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, so we were chatting previously off air about doing locum work and we should do a full episode on this but you've been in the in the i was going to say unenviable the um position of doing a locum uh, a couple of times over the last six months or so and i did locums for many years mark and i think at one stage i tallied up that i worked at about 30 vet clinics here in melbourne over um five or ten years so um, I think I just kept getting kicked out of each one. <laughs> I kept doing further locums. And, yeah, locums are, you know, there's a lot of positives, isn't there, to locums in that you sort of, the theory is that you walk in and you walk out at the end of the day and you don't have any of the 
hassles to deal with being a permanent employee or even more so being a business owner and all the staffing issues and doing the pays and the finances and all that sort of thing. But there are some potential negatives and I think it's part of the art of being a good locum, isn't it, Mark? And that's that's it's it's pivoting. It's it's working out what and the, what happens and the way things are done in the particular practice that you're working at and and adjusting your approach and your consultation uh, methods, etc. Because you'd, we, we all get set in our ways, don't we? Crikey's, I know that I've been so, so set in my ways that, you know, so much of the workplace I was in um, was built around the way I did things and... Um, and you don't, because that happens sort of organically, you don't realise it till you're uh, taken out of that environment and put in another one. And and I disagree a little bit with you. I think um, I don't. I wouldn't have called them. Um, I wouldn't have said anything's negative about it. I don't think it. Was, it certainly wasn't a negative experience. But when we were talking, I did point out that um, that, and you used the the word that sort of expressed it the best to me that you need to be adaptable, you need to be able to change and fit in, you need to be a bit of a veterinary chameleon, uh, you need to um, see your environment and fit into it. And and that's, I, I was just using the simple example of, of uh, standing next to the surgical table and, and how you orient yourself with respect to a surgical case and the lighting and uh, all the uh, monitoring equipment, um, where the surgical pack is is uh, is set. All these things, when you're working in a practice for a long time, then they're natural and you don't think about them. But you go into another practice where they're all done to an exceptionally high standard, but they're just things are just different, and different. you've got to be adaptable. And it sucks up a lot of time, doesn't it? it especially in that first initial period if you're spending more than a couple of days at a place doing a locum it, it's it's really hard because it, it, even when they book lightly initially when you're there it's it, it's a real challenge isn't it not, not just, oh, sim- sim- just a simple thing like knowing where everything is so we i just even remembered i was doing a, a, a fecal flotation and um and the fecal flotation containers was stored for a reasonable reason in a different place than the fecal flotation fluid. Um, and like you said, it just three or four minutes figuring things out, then asking someone and, and all that stuff adds up. So you do have to be able to absorb that as a locum to make it all work. Absolutely. And I wasn't particularly trying to be negative about them. I loved <laughs> the time I did, did locums, but some people actually you just do not cope with it long term and and um, that's fair enough it just just doesn't work for them like some people don't like practice or are not suitable for practice. I do think it's a good thing for us to talk about too Brendan because I can see locum work being an increasing part of the solution to um, to our veterinary shortages that uh, more and more veterinarians will 
um, graduate and a greater pool of them will be like a floating population of workers and they might not work full time but they'll provide breaks for those who are working full time but they will be more and more important I think as time goes on so so I see yep. see a good discussion for us to have one podcast about locums yes we will so we might drop it there and we'll, we'll add it within the list of keep our powder dry ever expanding list of potential topics in the future <laughs> And I, oh, I was going to say something else about that, but I won't. Um, we'll move on to the news <laughs> stories. And speaking of need, um, needing locums, Mark, and uh, the fact at the moment, certainly, that um, there's a big deficit of students and, and graduates, uh, there's plans submitted for a new vet school in Lancashire in the UK, Mark, and... A new School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Central Lancashire has been submitted to Preston City Council and they're planning a new 45,000 square foot four-storey building on their Preston campus, the first in its kind in the area and the 11th mark, the 11th dedicated UK veterinary school and they're planning to have it be completed by September 2024. So... They go in, it goes in cycles, doesn't it? I think we've both both mentioned this. You know, the oversupply and then a, then an undersupply and then it bounces back again. So, I wouldn't be surprised in another ten years that people are complaining that there's too many vet schools again. So, do you think that's going to happen, or as you were sort of hinting at, Mark, with the changes with the way people like to work and and the hours they want to do, do you think that will not be the case? I, my opinion is that it's going to be a lot longer than 10 years before we have too many vets. Uh, the number that are required currently, the number that are projected to be required over the next 10, 15 years, uh, the fact that this, this veterinary school in Lancashire may be built uh, by 2024, but there won't be any, um, any graduates before 2030 yes you're right and um and so i i think even though there will be more uh veterinary schools uh i think that they, they will struggle to get and and i don't mean that to be a downer for our profession i think there are things that we can do in the interim that takes some of the the pressure off all of us um, but i i would be cautious about uh expecting a huge increase in the number of available uh veterinarians to man the man the man the uh the, the man the, the clinic that's right person the clinic mark now i need one of your theories mark it's not just the veterinary profession is it it's a huge range of professions and trades and other industry and the service industry that there's a a massive a massive shortfall in 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 staff so what's happening, Mark? What's happened to all these people that were working in all these industries, Mark, now that we've got tens of thousands of people that... I saw a note recently here in Australia, Mark, that there's a huge, huge um, requirement for train drivers, for instance, yes. um, as well as nurses and vets and doctors and construction workers and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So... What's the story? What's happened to all the, you know, is everybody decided, what's your theory, Mark? Has everybody decided not to work anymore? 
Like many things, Brendan, I think it's a subtle and nuanced situation. And while the overall outcome looks similar across all the professions and trades, I think that um, each of them has just a slightly different flavour and slightly different emphasis and slightly different uh, uh, ultimately causative factors. But I do think that our population growth here in Australia is not matching uh, the, you know, the, the number of graduates is not matching the economic growth, if that's right, we, where there are more people who can afford more uh, veterinary services, who can afford more expensive and complex veterinary services. And at the same time, they they can afford to, uh, you know, upgrade their home and build an extension and, and uh, buy an investment property. There's more wealth and as a consequence, more money is spent and um, and more work needs to be done. At the same time, I agree with you that um, many people in the workforce are switching from, you know, the 38-hour week or sometimes much longer, which was the case when we were recent graduates, um, to a, to a, a part-time arrangement where they, uh, you know, indulge their uh, hobbies or maybe they, um, you know, uh, uh, play a sport or, but they might not work a full 38-hour week. Uh, and so uh, there's more part-time workers. All these factors, I think, work together. But I think um, particularly our profession is uh, the demand. We're going to see that continue for the foreseeable future, if not grow. And uh, it'll take some time before there's an, enough uh, graduated vets to accommodate the demand. Mark, you always reason. <laughs> You always reason very logically, don't you? Um, I don't know well about that. Reason. There'd be lots of people that would disagree with you, I think, Brendan. Well, if you disagree, vetgurus at gmail.com. Send us an email. Now, what is your news story, Mark? My news story, is, Brendan, is one that sort of uh, bookends a news story that we looked at a few weeks ago Um uh, this one talks about another penny ped, um, an elderly fur seal that was uh, discovered on a dairy farm about 35 kilometres from the nearest ocean um, in southwest Victoria. Um, and uh, the, the property at Simpson, a very, uh, you know, um, elegantly named place, uh, the cattle property uh, had a, the, the farmer who I saw the, um, what was her name, uh, Carly, Carly McGee, said she was completely shocked when she first wandered out into the paddock and saw something brown moving in the distance and said, oh, I better go and check that out, um, wandered down in the tractor to the paddock and thought, no, oh, I've got to chase this feral pig out of the paddock. And when she got uh, up close, she could definitely tell it wasn't a pig and it was a seal. Um, she was shocked, Brendan. Shocked, I say. Um, so, of course, uh, the authorities were contacted. Um, the Melbourne Zoo's Mar Marine Response Unit. Um, I wonder if they have a unit uniform, the Marine Response Unit. Anyway, <laughs> they were sent to the scene and, uh, and um, they made a... 
um, they collected a bit of information. They made some judgments about whether the animal was likely to be uh, able to be returned to the sea or whether it might find its way on its own. Uh, but they did find out that it was a relatively um, elderly animal and it was suffering from blindness in one eye and um, had a number of dental fractures. Uh, all these things meant that it was probably not going to have a long life even if a major intervention to return it to the ocean was undertaken and it was determined that euthanasia was the best welfare outcome for the seal as it would not be able to forage and live naturally in the wild. It'll be interesting because um, they will conduct a a post-mortem, a necropsy in the next few days. Um, and I'll be very interested to see whether there was any additional, you know, is there some neurologic thing going on because the animal has uh, lead intoxication? Did it have pica because of its uh, teeth issues? I'll be very interested to follow this story up, Brendan. It is a fair distance, isn't it, Mark? 30 k's from the ocean that it's managed to wander into this. And there's a couple of photos there. One is typical of sort of the, I've found something weird in the in the wild and it's a blurry photo. It could be literally anything. <laughs> but, the, but the second, you know, it could be Yeti, who knows. Um, but the, the other photo is a, a, quite a good one of, of the seal and, and, and a few um, cows eyeing this seal off and thinking, what the hell is this in our paddock? <laughs> so, yes, but... Um, sad end in, but um, obviously they did uh, they did assess it. Although the way the article was written, I was that um, they should have changed a couple of the paragraphs there, Mark, because one paragraph is today's intervention was required after the seal failed to find a way back to the open open ocean along the same path. You know, so it was euthanized. Um, they should have put the following sentence first: our assessment of the seal was found to be elderly suffering from blindness one eye in one eye and dental fractures because it sounds if you stopped at that first sentence you'd think oh it you know it was too far away from the ocean so we just killed it you know, so <laughs> yeah yeah so yes and that's a follow-up to that story we had with freya um the walrus um story and the controversy controversy over that one and i think this is a good intro to our main topic this week mark sort of a a sideways segue into a topic that you thought we should address, and that is resurrection of species, Mark. And there's a couple of articles that have come out recently, one in particular with a with a species that they're thinking about trying to resurrect from the dead in here in Australia, Mark, um, and whether we should do it. So do you want to open yes, the discussion I do. I, on this? I... I... You know, was down in Tasmania earlier in the year and um, and did my own little spot of walking around, seeing if I could find some tracks or holding the camera up so I could get a blurry photo of a, a dog that I might be able to Photoshop into a tiger. Um, and um, so it was with some excitement that I saw the animal in question, that U.S., biotech giant colossal biosciences has decided to invest is the thylacine they're going to invest 10 million dollars in a university of melbourne team they, they'll be in your backyard brendan doing this work and their objective is to bring the tasmanian tiger uh, better 
probably better called the thylacine, back from extinction. They're going to de-extinct the animal, Brendan. So the funding funding is combined with uh, um, five million in private donations, um, and it'll allow a team of about fifty scientists across Melbourne and Texas to work on the project for three years. Uh, if milestones are met, if the KPIs are achieved, the project will probably run for another uh, seven years, to, to rounding out a decade uh, when um, the uh, people running the project expect to produce their first live thylacine. Um, so, geez, I... I was. Mm. We've had this, We've had a talk about this a number of times, and they're a bit uh, cocky, aren't they, Mark? Um, <laughs> that's would, the first thing I'd say. The, the quote from one of the professors, the head of the Melbourne arm of the project, was: "We will bring something back, one hundred percent. There is nothing in the science that is insurmountable." And then the yep. argument is de-extinction is a fairy tale science, <laughs> says another associate professor from the Australian Centre for Ancient DNA, Mark. So, so I think it's good to have a quick talk about exactly what is going to happen here. Um, and so it because it is, it is a little bit, it's not exactly what I thought when I first, I thought what was probably going to happen with these types of things, you know, woolly mammoths or um, the dodo is another one that's often talked about, is that they would find a specimen who had preserved DNA and then they would somehow cut and paste that into a suitable uh, donor, um, you know, in the case of the woolly mammoth, maybe find an elephant and slip that DNA into the egg of an elephant um, and allow the DNA to um, grow into a woolly mammoth. So essentially that, that process is, uh, is cloning. Um, and that's the way I thought it would be very likely to go. But no, Brendan, that's unlikely to be how this project will go. It's most likely um, that they will start with the DNA of a very closely related species. And in the case of the thylacine, that's the fat-tailed dunnart. Um, and they will edit the, the, um, the, the dunnart's DNA um, to make it more and more like, um, more, more and more like a thylacine. So the animal that is actually produced is much more likely, I think, to be thought of as a as a hybrid. It will definitely have a lot of Dunnart DNA, um, and then it'll have a lot of flavoring DNA um, that's copied from analysis of a number of samples of uh, thylacine DNA. Um, so... It's so, a bit of a mishmash, isn't it? And then the, the, the plan was to then... You know, what put the genome inside a stem cell, uh, become an embryo, implant the embryo inside the uterus of a baby tiger, um, according to this um, article, Mark. So, Jesus, a lot of ifs and buts with it. Near, yeah, I agree with you. The thought that it wasn't as clear cut as what we thought that was going to be, just to you know get the get the work out the genome of this and let's clone the animal and let's yeah. let's get going with Jurassic Park. 
the the real Jurassic Park, Mark. Um, so, so what do you think of it all? Um, you and I've had this discussion a couple of times, and I'm, I've I've I don't know that my thought processes have developed all that much from our initial discussion. And what I said to start with was that I'm badly trapped in two minds. I I would love nothing more than to see a living thylacine. You know, that's why I was trudging around, trudging around the bush in um, Tasmania, just on the chance. But, um, but another part of me says, despite my desperate heart beating to see some extinct animal de-extincted, I don't know that, I don't know that it, well, let's just say that I see it as a huge ethical minefield and I don't know that I've in my mind have solved some of the resolved some of the significant ethical dilemmas that it would present to even contemplate going down this path yes we're just it's another variation of stamp collecting isn't it it's it's <laughs> resurrecting an animal so we can gawk at it and say look there's a thylacine um, just no benefit for the species because there'll be only one of them initially, won't there? And who knows whether or not they'd be in, you know, be able to breed or not if they ended up producing more than one. And it's a, just another version of a, of a or, or a much worse version of zoo, but um, and just having it as supposed tourism, isn't it, Mark? So well, and, um, and that's I, I, you've hit the nail on the head. I, there, there is talk in much of the PR material, in much of the media material about uh, rewilding. That you know, the first step will be to get one, and then we'll have a population that we release to the wild. Um, well, I think a it's going to be very difficult to get any of them. B it's going to be very difficult to get. A sufficient number that you could ever call it a population. C, we're bloody ruining every bit of habitat that might be suitable to release something into the wild. Um, if the habitat was suitable for them to be in the wild, they wouldn't have become extinct. Um, so I, I, yeah, I don't know. I do think it'll end up. They'll end up. They will end up doing this, and there will be a special part of uh, Melbourne Zoo where uh, you'll be able to go and and. Uh, and see a de-extincted thylacine, I expect, but I don't know that it's going to change the world in any profound way besides us humans being able to pat ourselves on the back at our technological marvel ability. And it might be the size of a donut, Mark. <laughs> so it might be a mini thylacine. <laughs> so well, and that, that, but, about but that. you jest... But I do think um, that uh, messing around, I know in our, in our um, plan for the podcast, in our detailed discussion and, and uh, agenda for the podcast, you mentioned Jurassic Park. And, um, and one of the things about that movie that always upsets me is that everything goes pear-shaped in an entirely predictable way. Uh, but um, I'm scared that... Um, the real world is just going to follow Jurassic Park. They're just going to follow suit. It is going to be entirely predictably disastrous, and um, and yeah, they they might make a very very tiny or maybe a very very big uh, Tasmanian tiger. I don't know. It, it yeah, who knows, Brendan? I don't. 
I don't like that part of it. I'd love to look at it, but I don't know that I'd like the process. Yes. Jurassic World Dominion, Mark, um, is uh, what is that number three or four or five um, that was out recently? And I, I have watched it and it was mildly interesting. Um, there were a few dinosaurs in it, I suppose, um, which was a positive, um, as, it, as it should. Um, its ratings weren't fantastic. Um, so the other yeah. thing that um, is interesting. For me, I don't know what our listeners will think, but in my, you know, relatively ignorant mind, I I thought, oh, this will lead, you know, first of all, there'll be uh, thylacines and, and uh, obviously there's additional technical problems trying to get a woolly mammoth and, um, and then things like uh, dodos or, or uh, but then I thought, you know, this will end up with producing some dinosaurs, but um, I'm given to understand that the uh, there is a limit to um, the the t- time that you can have useful DNA that d- that uh, material that's more than about a million years old will not yield enough information that um, that you could reasonably uh, develop a genome and then work to insert the critical bits into a related species. So I don't think we're going to end up with Jurassic Park, but then maybe we won't end up with uh, any park from the recent past either. Tell them they're dreaming, Mark. That's what I say. <laughs> Tell them they're dreaming. Spend the money on trying to keep the species we still have and the habitats especially. But I agree. That's 1,000% correct. They've... um. They've got a bit of money, haven't they? Um, they um, it's not just the thylacine that they were um, that they have funding for. They they've raised a hundred and five million US, I think, from investors across the world initially, based on the promise to revive the woolly mammoth market. The um, company that, that wanted to do that, and it, it does was, seem to be a bit of a like that's a little bit of an object. The the I don't know what do they call it a. a the, that's the target. That's the objective. The mammoth, that's the main yeah. main game to get yep. a mammoth going. Yeah. Um, oh, I don't know about that either, Brendan. What with global warming, there'll be no tundra left for the the mammoth to wander on, and and, and uh, mammoth undertaking for oh colossal God. biosciences. <laughs> I don't know, don't know if they'll do it. Mark, <laughs> Uh, Uh, look i think there'll be some yeah i do too there'll be some interesting side benefits though i do i like one of the things that um is useful is that the processes that they learn to manage the genetic uh, material from the dasurids and the reproductive technologies they learn to apply to them, they may well be useful conservation tools for animals that are, you know, that are around now. We may not, we may not necessarily um, be bringing a species back from extinction, but um, maybe we can, like you said, hold some of the ones that we've got from falling off the cliff well, and uh, hang hang on to those. Interesting. 
You should say that, Mark, further down in the article. The team plans to work first on genetically modifying Australian quolls to be resistant to cane toad venom. So we've got a few a few ideas there, and I think those sorts of um, sort of less glamorous, I suppose, and, and catchphrasey and clickbaity sort of parts of this um, process um, are more... Um, well, more useful, I think. More I think useful. That's, yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I think um, the, I, I did a little bit of um, reading on the the uh, the because we went down to Tassie and we did go to Malaluca and see the orange-bellied parrots, which mm, I'm sure all our listeners will be aware is a um, critically threatened, near extinct. Australian small Australian parrot migrates 600 kilometres each year across Bass Strait, and uh, the wild population got down to one male and five females um, just after 2000. So, you know, a little bit of a bottleneck, Um, and captive breeding um, has uh, bolstered their their. Uh, numbers in the wild to about 130 and I think there's I don't hold me to this but six or eight hundred in captivity um, and the captive population keeps feeding new ones into the wild so by any measure that would be a bit of a success but that genetic bottleneck means that they're exceedingly prone to you know they all have a sense they're very very closely related and um, and so Maybe at the moment um, they're even talking about um, cross-breeding to some of the very closely related parrots to introduce some genetic variability. But if the technology arrives where we can manage the genetics without um, cross-breeding, maybe maybe we can maintain the species more soundly than out-crossing and crossing back with a with a closely related. Parrot. I don't th- see all that stuff is um, is changing so quickly that it, that I do think there'll be some benefits. I just don't know the ultimate benefit will be a thylacine. Yes, I tell you what, I've just been looking over the colossal website, Mark, and it's pretty slick, pretty slick, and uh, well, very slick. Like. And under their de-extinction. Um, Tab. T- tab there. Um, we are the de-extinction company. We accept the challenge on behalf of humanity, the animal kingdom, and the universe at large. There you go, Mark. You, you don't think they've got a god complex happening, do you? <laughs> they, uh, it's a pretty snazzy um, website. So there we go. So um, we'd love to hear any thoughts from our listeners, vetgurus at gmail.com. Should we de-extinct animals? Should there be such a word in the English or any other language, Mark? <laughs> and what should we do if we do manage to de-extinct them? Should we be breeding up all these species? And then, what, I mean, what's going to follow on then, Mark? Are we not going to spend... We won't spend any money on animals that are be critically endangered because who cares? We can just de-extinct them when they. It does. It gives us an absolute false sense of security about uh, about the whole concept of genetic um, diversity, biodiversity. Um, you know, it will like the petrol company that um, is about to mine in a location where they, that will wipe out a species. 
um, we'll just, um, you know, I will just uh, use some of our massive profits to harvest some DNA. We'll put it away, and uh, later on we'll um, de-extinct that uh, population. Um, I, I, I don't want us to have that full sense of security, Brendan. Yep, I agree. Well, it may not happen in our generation, Mark. Who knows? Um, although they're hundred percent confident it will occur, won't they? Uh, so <laughs> let's see. We'll 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 hang in there, and if our podcast is still going in five years' time, we might revisit the topic, Mark, to see if we oh um we can post a, a live recording from the from the zoo, Mark, um, as we're looking at the thylacine that's been de-extincted. I hope I'm there. Yes. Well, I think with that, we'll get out of here. Um, we're extinct for this episode, Mark, and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.